Before we start, we don't need the slides for this, but I have a, a question, and that is, do you have questions? We set up a web, uh, a email account at newhopechapel.questions at gmail.com, and you're welcome. Oh, we are getting there. Yeah, I got that. They all have it. I'm just here as, you know, more okay. for it. And so you should send an email to that account, should you wish, to ask a question. It's monitored by the teaching team, and we'll be happy to uh, share anything we know to help you answer the question. I just put that caveat in because we're in Daniel, and this is a hard book. Um, and we covered chapter 8 last week, and we'll be doing it this week. And Joanne did a great job of going through the chapter and connecting the prophecy to the second century crisis in Jerusalem because of Antiochus Epiphanes and the revolt led by the Maccabees. So I want to know, does anybody want to briefly share something they took away from last week? Because we're still in chapter 8, this will help launch us into that. Anybody want to share something they remember, something that struck them from last week? This is optional, but happy to entertain it, happy to hear it. All right, well, let's review the text again. We're just going to read a, a couple of chunks from it. Uh, verses 3 through 9 in Daniel 8. Then I lifted up my eyes and I saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. Suddenly, a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down on the ground and trampled him. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. And when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, and out of them came a little horn. The chapter goes on, and we're going to drop down near the end of it, uh, part of the interpretation, where it focuses in on this little horn. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors shall have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. Well, let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you for the love you have for us, the way that you've made for our sins to be forgiven and us to be uh, adopted into your family. We thank you that we have your presence here because we're gathered together in your name. Right now, I'd like to ask you to use the things that will be said here this morning Use them for your purpose. Use them for your glory. We just yield them to you and give them to you. 
In your name, amen. There are hundreds of prophetic verses and sections in the Old Testament, and Daniel is loaded with them. This entire chapter seems dedicated to things occurring during the Greek Empire. And like I say, Joanne made a great case for that. Let me ask you another question. Now that your mind's got warmed up working on the first one, we'll make the connection between mind and mouth on this one. Why do you think God was giving Daniel a heads up about happenings two centuries later? What's the significance? Why is God bothering to give Daniel this heads up about something two centuries in the future? Thoughts on that? Yes. I would think uh, in light that they were all in exile, Mm-hmm. It would be really great to know that God was at work and had plans for their future. Yeah, yeah, God had plans for their future, no question. Part of this prophecy, though, they're in exile, they're looking forward to the day they're free, and then here's a prophecy that says, oh yeah, by the way, some guy's going to come along and oppress you and destroy everything. Uh, but yes, <laughs> That was part of the plan, and there would be an end to that. Yes, somebody else. Thank you. Yes, Becky. It may sound simple, but because he would listen to him, like he would, and not just listen to him, but also share, but he was all to, not just, yeah. you know, so other people would know as well, and be encouraged that, like, hey, this is part of the plan. Right, but right. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, God bothered to have it written and placed in the canon of Scripture so that uh, everybody, not just the exiles of Daniel's day, if he gave it a limited release, but this was here in Scripture for all time so that even we here in 2022 can read it and, and be instructed by it. Yes, Mari. God had placed Daniel in a, a nation that was known for their interpretation of prophecy. And his whole life was marked by God proving that he was better at interpreting prophecy and interpreting dreams than anybody else in that whole land who mm-hmm. were famed worldwide to the point that the name of the nation was a stand-in for dream interpreter and prophet. Mm-hmm. Like, he was in the place where prophets were made. Yeah, and yeah. God is showing, like, I am a better prophet than any of you guys. Okay. That his placement as a, a, mm-hmm. a foreigner in the land of the prophets is part of that as well. Okay, great. Uh, and to sort of just give a quick summary for those listening on the podcast, the, uh, Daniel was living through some empires that, and cultures that had a, put a great stock in prophecy. And uh, uh, Babylon had this, this great group of prophets and they train prophets and they develop prophets and so here in that context uh god put daniel and his friends and uh and had demonstrated time and time again through the earlier chapters of daniel and now that he was the better better prophet maker and uh and and better than any of the gods of the babylonians the greeks and so on thank you yes Melman. Whenever any of us go through hard things, wouldn't we kill to know what's on the other side? Yes. So, you know, it's just because it's context, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we always love context, but, you know, we, <laughs> we love 
love, we love knowing that there's an ending <coughs> because it makes the harder part more bearable. Okay. So uh, what you're saying is it's human nature to want to know, especially when things are hard and, and not good, to know what's on the other side. We, we, know that yeah, them, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how many newspapers horoscopes are syndicated in, but there's a lot of people just tell me what's going to happen. Need to know. So excellent. Thank you for that. The thing. Of, oh yes. Princes. Yes. Um, I, in hindsight, we know that the Romans eventually take over yes. the Greek. Yes. Um, and I've often heard it said, believe it, that it was a perfect timing for Christ to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because of the fact that. It was um, kind of a, a universal country, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so the travel, the yeah. it, it, so I, I just with the Prince of Peace, I, yeah. I just kind of think um, about Jesus being put up the cross at that point, and I don't yes. know if that's what the Prince of Peace refers to. Yeah. Not really sure, but it just <laughs> it stands out to me that that is, yeah. that, 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 that that's involved. Yeah, that's involved. Yeah. Whole yeah. Yeah. thing of it. Very astute to spot that phrase in this chapter. I hope I remember to mention and highlight that as we as we hit it in a few minutes. But uh, Prince of Princes, it, it talks about there and how this um, little horn is going to actually go up to, to fight against, hope to prevail against the Prince of Princes. And, uh, but your comment had to do with the fact that he had all these great empires and God used all them to set up uh, what he wanted to have happen when Christ came in his first coming, his death on the cross and, and the spread of Christianity and the gospel. Yes, very good, yeah. Yeah, very astute. Thank you. Well, one thing about prophecy, and you've been told this by Bill, and I believe Joanne did as well, and I'm going to tell you, is there's a lot of uncertainty as we go to interpret it. It's not laid out there in a way that we can say, look, see this sentence? That has to mean and can only mean this. Uh, as we're looking toward prophecy and looking toward the future, uh, you know, could be, maybe... You know, and so we're in that context as we talk this morning. We always are, particularly prophecy that points to the future. The way I like to think about it is uh, solving puzzles. You know, you have, I don't know, that's a, I can't read the box, a thousand, fifteen hundred piece puzzle, maybe two thousand. Complex. And there uh, a lad is and somebody else on the other part uh, of the table and they've got the picture and they're working this puzzle. It's always great when you got a puzzle, you got pictures, you say, yeah, here's a blue splotch, I see that there, I know it goes here. But that's not what we have with prophecy. 
we have a handful of pieces. Here they are. Let's make our puzzle. Uh, and maybe this goes with that. Maybe, maybe that color is part of this color, or that pattern might morph into that pattern. And so we know we don't have all the pieces. Well, there's, there's a, a problem right there in, in thinking we might end up with something that we can interpret as a picture. But even worse, it came, comes in a box that doesn't have the picture. So we don't have anything, any way to, to completely be sure of hooking things in. That's a little like prophecy. And we can look at pieces and say, gee, these, this set seems to go together in a bunch. And that's good, but uh, does it fit here? Does it fit there? Uh, and, and so we always have to hold prophecy very loosely, an interpretation of prophecy very loosely in our hands. We can never have full confidence in the result. We like to have our convictions about what the Bible says, and we say, well, Jesus said this, and that really is pointing to this problem in humankind. Or Paul says this, and look at the context here. He's talking about what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. Prophecy, we just don't quite have that same confidence level with things. But we can have the confidence level in the answers that you just heard. The fact that prophecy is sure. We may not be able to read it and say, oh yeah, in the future, exactly this is going to happen. But we can look at the prophecies that have been fulfilled and look in hindsight and say, yeah, God had this woven into the plan. There it is. So prophecy's purpose is a little different maybe than we want it to be. But one thing's for sure in prophecy, there are big thematic truths that are being emphasized, not the specifics of any one prophecy. And again, I know Joanne and Bill have mentioned there's purpose for prophecy, and they have given some lists I honestly didn't go back and re, uh, listen to and, and, and get all of their lists exactly, but I thought I would share some observations of my own uh, to that. Uh, pretty short, but certainly themes that are represented in Daniel's prophecies are the horror of human evil. It, it's it really is, and we'll see this as we talk about prophecies here in chapter 8, but it, it, it really can be mind-blowing how evil, evil can be. Uh, that's a theme that you, that you get in some of these prophecies. Second thing, the revelation of the power of God. We see the power of God in the prophecy, in its being fulfilled, and usually in its fulfillment, God has worked in a powerful way. The certainty of judgment for evil. That's that, Melanie talked about, you know, being sure, getting encouragement because you know it's not going to last forever. It's going to end. And, and that's the last one, the assurance of specific deliverance. You find these themes repeated in Daniel's prophecies. But I don't want to leave the idea that there may be more in chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8 does seem to nail, as we look back in history, Antiochus Epiphanes. And jo that's what Joanne covered last week. Historically, what happened in the second century before Christ. 
But scholars who make their living studying all things related to prophecy believe there's a further reference here in chapter 8. Let me explain. But first of all, let me read to you from their words because I'm not adequate. Let's let's hear what what they have to say. We're going to read from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's put together by John Walvrood, Roy Zuck. Uh, The Daniel chapter is written by Dwight Pentecost. Uh, All great scholars. And uh, here's, here's the quote. There is no question among expositors that Antiochus is in view in this prophecy. What was prophesied was fulfilled literally through him. Emphasis mine. However, the prophecy looks beyond Antiochus to a future person, the Antichrist, of whom Antiochus is only a foreshadowing. Again, that's my emphasis. From Antiochus, certain facts can be learned about the forthcoming desecrator. And he's talking about the fact that in chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes disrupted temple worship, set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies uh, for uh, several years. And it was only until the Maccabees uh, staged a revolt that, that Jerusalem and the temple were retaken and, and re-consecrated. But going on, so it may be concluded that there is a dual reference. Excuse me. In this striking prophecy, may be concluded that there's a dual reference in this striking prophecy. It reveals Israel's history under the Seleucids and particularly under Antiochus during the time of Greek domination, but it also looks forward to Israel's experiences under Antichrist, whom Antiochus foreshadows. Okay, that's their opinion. That's their interpretation of this. And let's, we're going to explore this one a little bit. But first of all, what is a dual reference, or sometimes called a dual fulfillment or double fulfillment? Let me give you some examples of that, but first a definition. It's the idea that some prophecies in the Bible have both a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. In other words, they get fulfilled more than once, or they apply to a situation or event in two different periods of time. Let me show you these examples. A little bit challenging, not too bad. I thought it was going to be challenging to read the chart with so much information on it. One text out of Deuteronomy 18. Moses writing the law to the people of Israel, and he's anticipating the point at which he is going to die. And he writes in there, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So it's a prophecy to the people. It's a promise to the people that God's going to raise up somebody. And he does in Joshua and other leaders that come after Joshua. But Peter, in Acts 3, as he's preaching to the crowd, He identifies this as a prophecy about Jesus the Messiah. There's Moses, considered one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And and, uh, Peter's saying, and this is the prophet that's going to 
that's going to replace him. And this is the guy you should hear. All right, secondly, 2 Samuel 7.14. I, God speaking, will be his father, and he, he's talking about Solomon, shall be my son. So God, through Nathan the prophet, is talking to David and telling David, look, you're not going to build the temple for me. That's not my plan for you, but you're going to have a son, and I'm promising to you that I'm going to establish his kingdom and establish his throne, and I'm going to take care of this guy, and he's going to be the one to build the temple for me. A terrific little prophecy. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 applies this prophecy, at least this last sentence, he shall be I will be, no, that's the whole thing. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Applies it to Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So this is a second fulfillment of this. Isaiah seven fourteen through 16. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, uh, this secondary, longer-term fulfillment, it's no surprise to you, we hear this verse multiple times every Christmas season. But that's not what Isaiah was saying to Ahaz. What he was saying to Ahaz, what God was saying through Isaiah to him, at that moment, in that time period, was King Ahaz, you do not have to worry about the king of Israel and the king of Syria, both of whom were making big noises about invading Judah. Don't worry. And this is your sign. A young woman, a virgin, somebody in marriageable age, is going to get married and have a son. And before that child is old enough to tell good from bad, good from evil, those two kings are going to be gone. They're going to be deposed. They're going to be dead. They're, going to be gone. They're not going to be in charge anymore. And you're going to be safe. That's what the original fulfillment was designed for. We're much more familiar with this secondary fulfillment of Jesus. Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And God is talking in Hosea here, and he has a message for Israel. This is the beginning of it. And he's, he's referring to the fact that he, God, loved Israel, and he delivered them from Egypt in the book of Exodus. Same thing happens as with some of these others. Matthew cites this verse, the second half of it. And out of Egypt I called my son, and ascribes it to Jesus. Because... Uh, Joseph and Mary went down to Egypt to avoid Herod's massacre of the babies and young boys. And then finally, an interesting one, Joel 2, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Again, we're a little more familiar with the initial fulfillment of this but it's a surprising initial fulfillment because the context in Joel is the last days when Christ comes again, this future fulfillment of it. But what happens is Peter grabs this 
when he's talking at Pentecost, and he, he points to this verse and said, this day, this is being fulfilled in your ears. I have no doubt it's, we're going to see it fulfilled again in the end times, just like uh, Joel's chapter talks about. So this is dual fulfillment, the point of it, okay? One thing to notice, which I, I thought was interesting, is none of the prophecies really gave evident clues that there were going to be two fulfillments. Did you notice that? None of them said, well, here's this prophecy here, and there's a little something in it for the future, too. There, there, there isn't any, any sense of it, but yet God picks that out and, and uses it. Uh, in our case, we have clues in chapter 8 that God's probably showing us two things at once. One is near and one is far away. For one, for us, one of them is historical and known, and the other is unknown and honestly almost incomprehensible. We suspect this because of the writings of John, centuries after Antiochus lived and died, who writes about the Antichrist and some of what Daniel wrote in chapters 7 and 9 as well. And we can see the parallels. These are things that Dwight Pentecost pointed out and said these things in chapter 8 really also reflect things that John said the Antichrist was going to be like. And I'm just going to throw this up here for a moment. If you're, if you're really interested in the, these other references and things, I can provide these for you. But this is a set of things, verses 23 through 25, that are said about this um, little horn, this Antiochus Epiphanes, but they are also in Revelation 13 and 17 talking about the Antichrist. So that's one, one reason, is because there is a parallel that is drawn between the historical fulfillment of the prophecy and this future fulfillment. God's really employing a very effective teaching technique here. You know, he's the ultimate teacher. He's placing two things together, something we can wrap our heads around and another thing that's more difficult to comprehend. This has, some, this has some similarities to like a parable where you tell the story and everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. And then you say, well, and this is, this is how, this, this is illustrating a spiritual truth. Oh, boy, I hadn't thought about that. But I see it now that you've got it side by side with the parable. Teaching something new by placing it next to something that is known or well understood at least by the time Israel got to second century. Well understood, because they lived through it. So here in Daniel 8, it seems God is referencing the one who will come, the beast in Revelation 13 and 17, and the horn in Daniel 7. It's a whole lot like this little horn. This is a coin with Antiochus, Epiphany's uh, head on it. It's a whole lot like this little horn, but much more and much worse. Pointing the Antichrist is the one that this prophecy may find its second fulfillment in. Trying to picture this another way, I like pictures, they help me. I like cartoons too. 
They work real nicely. But we've got a situation here where you've got mice, and we've got four mice standing on each other's shoulders and sticking their hands out and everything, and a flashlight fl shining on them so that the shadow on the wall behind looks like this huge, terrible monster which scares the cat away. But that's sort of illustra illustrative of what's happening here. Antiochus Epiphanes, the, he's, the, he's this evil guy that uh, oppresses the Jews, uh, disrupts the temple worship in Jerusalem, creates great havoc there. And what chapter 8 is doing, it's also referencing, saying he is foreshadowing this Antichrist who comes on a worldwide stage and causes ultimate devastation. You know, we have something like this here with Daniel. Jesus spoke to his disciples long after Antiochus Epiphanes was dead. He died two centuries earlier. And Jesus spoke to his disciples. Greece no longer ruled the world. The Romans did. So that was done. And he said to them, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. Let him who's in the field not go back and get his clothes, for there will be a great tribulation such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. There's going to be problems. Human evil, other problems as you read the book of Revelation, that are going to cause such devastation, such horror, such chaos, and loss of life accompanying that, that unless it had been shortened, nobody on earth would survive it. And Antiochus Epiphanes, who created great chaos for the nation of Israel, is just a foreshadow of that bigger event. That's what probably is going on here in Daniel 8. Bigger and scarier than any other time in history. Jesus is indicating that in its ultimate sense, the prophecies of Daniel have a fulfillment that's yet to come. With this in mind, I just want to reread Daniel 8, 23 to 25. So that you can see what was written by Daniel and we say, yes, literal fulfillment seems to be of these verses by Antiochus. Here's where that we get this phrase, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. Uh, it, that really is a little bit of a clue as well, that we're not talking just about Antiochus. Who is the prince of princes? Antiochus didn't take on any heavenly bodies. He didn't take on what we would normally think, prince of princes, that's Jesus. He didn't really take him on. Like, like who was that? That's one of the things to say, well, maybe this is really looking at something else as well. 
But let's just read through this. With this in mind, that it's Antiochus and probably this Antichrist to come. And in the later time of their kingdom, when strangers have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. True of Antiochus, and I certainly think there are hints there of Antichrist. Well, what do we make of all this? Well, let me show you a chart. Here's a chart. Understanding God's plan for the ages. It is not up here for you to understand God's plan for the ages. It's simply here to illustrate that there's a timeline, there's a plan. This one could be way off as far as I know. It's somebody's idea. But I like it because it, we have a start over here of eternity past and, and Genesis 1 and 2, the start of what we have as far as the story arc of the Bible. And it goes all the way over here to Revelation 20 and 21. The new heavens and new earth. So it just illustrates the fact that everything's on a big timeline. We are somewhere here. Oh, let me use my pointer. We are somewhere here in this period of time after the cross and before all this end time stuff. That's where we are. Uh, we look back and we see Antiochus as history, something that happened long ago. And we turn and we look ahead and we see there's a great, terrible period here of great tribulation and the glorious return of Jesus Christ, the second coming, and judgment and all kinds of things that bring everything to a close. But we are here. Not quite there, well past the earlier material. The Babylonian Empire's come and gone, Persian Empire's defunct, Greek Empire's been overtaken by the Romans, and the end time with tremendous darkness of the great tribulation yet to come. Well, why am I saying that? Because where we are, we're part of the church. And we are not in the darkness yet. We are living in days of light. However you view the world now, and the events that are going on, and you read in your newspaper, and the troubles that you see, they're nothing compared to the great darkness of the great tribulation. And right now, we walk around. We have God's Holy Spirit in us. This is our day. We have this moment. We don't live long compared to the length of time on the chart. What, 100 years or so? Uh, but during this time, 
those we who feel like life is short, feel vulnerable and fragile and even fallible, this is our day and we have God's Spirit within us. And God has a purpose and a plan. The curtain is up. The scenery is set. And we are on stage to say our lines. Our few lines within the context of our maybe very small circle of influence. But this is our time on the timeline of God. I know I have a tendency to think in terms of looking for someone better to come along. Or someone more fit to step up and take this moment in my history and in my context and in my day here today or my day tomorrow. But you know what? We are it. What does God want from us? That's the question we need to be praying every day. God has that answer. God's Spirit has that answer. That should be our prayer every morning. Let me suggest a short prayer for you. And I'll make this the prayer for the, the end of the service and after which you'll be dismissed. Let's pray. God, I want to live today with purpose. What can I do for you? I want to be your hands your feet, your mouth, in this moment, for Christ's sake and in His name. Amen. Thank you so much. You're dismissed.